Can't begin to tell you what a delight it is to be back here in Michigan again. See all you Michiganders. Had a fairly uneventful trip, though I-75 is pretty messed up right before you get to Lexington all the way to Cincinnati. But uh, we had a little trouble getting a motel that first night. We used to split up the trip. Ended up going to four different motels before we finally got one. We did get one. Uh, other than that, it was a, a great trip. Uh, enjoyable. It's always enjoyable that my wife gets to travel with me. And, and uh, it's just a blessing to be here. It's good to see every one of you. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, beginning with verse 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute, a tribute money, came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? And he saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? And Peter said unto them, Of strangers. And Jesus said unto thee, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend, go thou to the sea. And cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. When thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take, and give unto them for me and thee. In this passage of Scripture, there's no doubt that this is a miracle performed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He and his disciples have come to Capernaum. In one scripture, in Matthew chapter 9, this is called Christ's own city. And it's where Peter made his home, according to Matthew chapter 8. And at that time, Peter was approached by a man who collected tribute money. Now, the money he collected was not for taxes to Rome as our Lord had dealt with that in Matthew chapter 22, when he said, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto me that which is mine. Nor was this the atonement money paid for every man in Israel when Israel was numbered, which signified that where atonement was not made, a person was not counted among the people. This was tribute money. It was money given for the support and maintenance of the temple. And it was a custom. And over the years it changed from being a voluntary act into becoming a tradition and even like a law among the Jews, which to many Jews was the same thing as being God's doctrine. Their traditions often became what they called God's doctrine. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 12, our Lord rebuked the Pharisees 
for teaching their traditions as if they were the doctrine of God. He says, you teach the traditions of men as if they were doctrines of God. However, this tribute was not a useless tradition because it did maintain the temple and it did keep it in good repair. It made sure that there was oil for the lampstand and, and bread for the table of showbread. The man who approached Peter asked if Christ had paid his tribute. Probably asking Peter because he did not know if Christ had been met the requirement of 12 months citizenship in Capernaum in order to pay tribute. Now Peter was known as a resident of that city. Our Lord then takes Peter aside. It says he prevented him or stopped him or preceded him even takes him aside and asks him a question designed to have Peter reach a conclusion about Jesus Christ, which is the purpose of all miracles to begin with, this miracle included. And so this miracle is going to tell Peter who Jesus Christ is. Our Lord says, who pays tributes? Who pays taxes? Does the king require taxes of his own family? Or does he require taxes of his subjects? And Simon Peter says, well, he, of course, he requires uh, taxes of his subjects. Our Lord says that the families, the children of the king, are free from paying tribute. By saying this, our Lord is asserting who he is. His words hold a twofold meaning. First, as the son of David, he is of the royal family and therefore is not required to pay tribute at all. Secondly, as the son of God and owner of the temple, in truth, tribute should be paid to him in truth. Thus, if he pays tribute, it will be a voluntary act wherein he may not be accused of breaking the law because he fulfilled every precept of the law. And declaring his right not to pay the tribute, he nonetheless does not desire to make it an issue at the time, lest we offend some folks, he said. He does not wish to needlessly offend this fellow. So he directs Peter, who was a fisherman, to go down to the sea and cast a hook. And in the mouth of the first fish he catches, he will find a coin. That will pay tribute for both he and Simon Peter. So Peter does so. And sure enough, there's a coin in that fish's mouth. And tribute is paid. This is nothing short of a miracle. It's a miraculous thing. But as with all miracles, they authenticate common and reasonable lessons. Miracles are not something unto themselves. Oftentimes men and women spend time observing this, these miraculous things at the expense of what these amazing things really mean and really teach. There are several things here in this passage of Scripture. The first thing is this. It is important for the believer to use the Scripture with care. To use the Scripture with care. Sometimes in the desire to be right to prove some point, a believer will be guilty of trying to press one point of Scripture to prove another. There are always examples of this in religion. Some men who are believers endeavor to use the law in an unlawful manner. 
as a rule of life and guide for the believer. The law is not the rule of life and guide for the believer. In fact, the believer, according to Scripture, is dead to the law, and he's dead to the law by the law. The law requires him dead to the law because the law has been satisfied on his behalf. The law of Moses belongs to the old covenant, not to the new covenant. But some can't seem to separate the two. Many believers who are trusting wholly in the merits of Christ for their salvation, endeavoring to be good and moral people, often err by applying to the law for a time. We do it in different ways. We may not call it Moses' law, but if we uh, caught stealing and our own mind is stealing, we'll try to pay it back. We'll try to do, do something. That never works. Simon Peter fell into this error as well as did Barnabas and James at Antioch, didn't they? They went back under the law. Those Gentile believers had been saved by grace. Paul had not preached the law to them except in the sense that the law was fulfilled, satisfied, and finished on Calvary's tree. And then the Judaizers came in and said, well, that's right. Christ did die and he saved us, but you still have to keep Moses' law. You have to be circumcised. And Peter and James and Barnabas fell under that error. And they walked away from the Gentiles and began having fellowship with the Judaizers. And when Paul came, he stood Peter face to face. Eyeball to eyeball. And said, you despise the grace of God. That's quite a rebuke, isn't it? They said that to Simon Peter and James and Barnabas. You despise the grace of God because you're going back, trying to get believers to go back under the law. Paul would later tell Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 through 10, that these who do this don't know what they're doing or the ramifications of what they do when they do it. By trying to believe, bring a believer back under the law, you're actually saying that Christ's work did nothing for the believer. Christ said he put away our sins. He put away our sins and he did not quantify or qualify them or list them what they were. It was a generic term that involved every sin that we've ever committed or ever will. All our sins. He put away all our sins by the sacrifice of himself. He died for our sins according to the scripture. And scripture teaches plainly that he has been made by God unto the believer. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He bore our sins in his body. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The child of God is righteous. He is perfect. He has been perfected by the Lord Jesus Christ and he stands accepted in the beloved without spot, wrinkle, blemish or any such thing. And for you to say, no, you must go under the law, you're saying to that one whom God has made clean, you're not clean. That's what you're saying. Paul says this way, to those who've been uh, uh, the right, uh, he says, 
The law is not for the righteous man. Who's the law for? It's for sinners. Who's the law for? It's for adulterers. Who's the law for? It's for fornicators. Who's the law for? It's for manslayers and, and murderers and, and anything else that's not of sound doctrine. But, being the human beings that we are, frail and faulty and full of fear, we often do what we ought not in these, in these things. Human beings apply human logic to spiritual things and it simply does not jive with faith. And sometimes it wins the battle in the concept of righteousness. For example, some have asserted the disciples weren't really saved until they heard the gospel. So they weren't really saved at the time they walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't have a full understanding of the gospel, and that's true. You look at Antioch, not Antioch, but uh, Pentecost, you'll find that they believed a whole lot of stuff after Pentecost they didn't understand before Pentecost, before the Spirit came and showed them Jesus Christ. But it must be remembered that when the disciples walked with Christ, the New Testament had not been written yet. So what is ours by God's grace, the full revelation of Christ was not yet theirs. And it's a waste of energy to press what we know to be true because we have at our disposal upon, uh, upon those who lived in a time when they did not, uh, when those things did not exist. We have the Bible. They didn't have the whole Bible. They had the Old Testament. Now the gospel is in the Old Testament and that's what they used to preach. But they didn't have the New Testament. Not yet. The Old Testament was Christ in picture and type and shadow. The Old Covenant was a visible and physical covenant building ceremonies and rites. And it was a conditional covenant. Basically, it said this. If a man under that covenant would naturally obey God, they would receive natural blessings. That was what that covenant said. That covenant was not of faith. That covenant was of sight. The law was written on stone, tables of stone, so that made it outside the adherent as a watcher and a reminder of what men are doing wrong. The time of Christ was a time of transition. It was an amazing time, this time in the Gospels, recorded in the Gospels, before the New Testament began being written. The Gospels were written after most of the New Testament epistles were penned. They were, they were written down. When these men came preaching the gospel in the early days when our Lord Jesus came, he required men to believe. To believe that the kingdom had arrived. And that meant the sovereign rule of Christ had arrived in person. But he accompanied all these things he said with signs and wonders and miracles. That accompanied the preaching of the word of God. Thus, that time was a mingling, if you will, of faith and sight for that short period of time. Then came the time of the apostles after Pentecost when the word of God was finished and sight was put away. All things visible don't matter. If you can see it, you can't count on it. If you can see it, you can't trust it. It's as simple as that. People talk about being literalist. I believe the Bible literally. 
Probably not. <laughs> but, but they say that anyway. You know what's literal in the world? What can't be seen. What can be seen is passing away. It's temporary. What's literal? Spiritual things. Things that God has spoken and declared that we've never seen at all. People talk about, show me some evidence that you're a child of God. I can't. I don't have any evidence. Because anything I can do can be duplicated by the devil. How do I know I'm a child of God? I believe. There's got to be more to it than that. No, I believe. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. The world has all kinds of evidence. All kinds of evidence. They wear it on their persons. They decorate their cars with it. They put it inside their church buildings. They walk a certain way and talk a certain way and hang their head a certain way and carry their Bible a certain way. They talk about the praying they do and the singing they do and the giving they do and all those things they do, the church attendance and so forth. They have evidence. But that's not evidence because a whole world does that who has no interest in Jesus Christ whatsoever. You think, I drove by an assembly church down on the way here this morning. It was packed. That lot was packed full of people. And if it's the kind of assembly that most assembly are, it's one of them full contact gospel churches where they just go into all manner of food. Don't know Christ from a goose. You got to guarantee you, if you went up and down there and preached Christ one time too, they'd throw you out of the church. Throw you out of the church. We have the word of God. What do you do with it? You believe it. What a wonder. The children of God are believers. That distinguishes them from what? From unbelievers. <laughs> That's the only thing that does. The law, the word of God is written in the hearts and minds of believers. Upon, I believe upon regeneration. And when that believer hears the gospel, they just believe it. They say, That's it. And that's true. And now no credentials are needed because the word is complete. God has given his people faith. And I don't have to do something so you'll believe the gospel. But back then they did. Back then they were given these things to authenticate the message that they preached. And so the purpose of this miracle that our Lord does here is to authenticate what he said to Peter concerning himself and concerning his children. Our Lord is the temple, isn't he? His body is the temple of which he is hid. And he could have rightfully, utterly discounted the physical temple. Pay tribute to the temple. You kidding? I'm the temple. He could have said that and been right. Are you kidding? My church, my those whom I came to save, mine elect, they had the temple. But he didn't. Why did he even bother to give tribute to a thing that would soon pass away? The temple was going away. Going to be destroyed. And fulfilled in his body. Because it wasn't time to do it. It wasn't time to do it. The offense would come. And he would 
pay for it at the hands of the temple worshipers. But his hour was not yet come, so for the time being he paid tribute, lest he offend. You know our Lord wasn't afraid of offending, offending religious folks. The only people he gave a hard time to was religious folks. But he paid the tribute. And that's a simple lesson. Choose your battles. <laughs> Choose your battles. Take care that you not, do, do not press the fact of the full revelation of Christ upon a time when he was not fully revealed to prove a point that is really of no value. He says, notwithstanding, lest we offend. It's a wise thing to pick your battles lest you become a soldier who lives for war and not peace. Sometimes the sight of your back and the dust of your feet as you walk away are the most effective testimony and rebuke against a false teaching. Our Lord said, lest we offend, we'll pay this tribute. The temple said that. The head of the temple said that. Let's pay tribute to the temple. Secondly, Christ is set forth here as the sovereign king. King over his creation. He is king. When you see the words, the kingdom is come, that means not only the king has come, but his sovereign rule has been established clearly. It means he reigns over all. He's the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. And all his creatures are subjects to him. They are his subjects. And all creatures, whether they believe him or not, all creatures, whether they love him or not, all creatures serve him and do his bidding and fulfill their purpose. Religion like say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God may not love you, but he's got a plan for your life whether you love him or not, or whether he loves you or not. All his creatures serve him. They do exactly as he bids. Our Lord taught Peter an important lesson. First he taught Simon Peter that he was a member of the royal family. He was a child, a son of David, because he didn't have to pay tribute. Made Peter see that before he paid tribute. Secondly, he taught Peter that even the fishes are the servants of the Most High. We are called fishers of men. One fish... You remember when they cast out the nets? Our Lord said, cast the nets on the other side, and they brought in 153 different species of fish in that one net so they couldn't even bring it in the boat. A lot of fish in that sea. A lot of fish in that sea. He said, go throw a hook in the sea and bring out a fish. And he did. One fish among all the fishes of the sea was used by Christ to pay the tribute. The fish paid the tribute. It's useless to try to figure this out. Don't try to figure out miracles. Don't try some to designate that the corn was miraculously created in the mouth of the fish. That may have been the case. Or that it laid on the bottom of the sea under sun's shipwreck and was scooped up by the fish while he was bottom feeding. Or was tossed as a coin into that sea as a big wishing well. This is a miracle. God going beyond what nature can do. Doing things with nature that's supernatural. 
It's a miracle designed to authenticate the message of who Christ is at the appointed time. This fish, according to the purpose and predestination of the master, bit the appointed hook and was cast by the appointed man at the appointed time and showed up with the exact change to pay the bill. And fish is God's fish. <laughs> it's that simple. Why? Because Christ Jesus is king. Sovereign king. And a tribute is exacted upon the subject and not the children of the king's house. Peter would later in his epistle call the believers a royal priesthood. I believe that there is also an intimation that the children of the king are not required to pay tribute to any temple but to Christ. They pay tribute to the temple. For they sacrifice the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. All believers are predestinated. And all believers are predestinarians. Until sometimes providence doesn't fit their thinking, then they kind of fall away, but they can always come back. This was God's fish. And he had the right change. Thirdly, our Lord teaches the lesson that he is the God of means. Now, the fact that his, of his sovereignty is often used to teach that he does not need means, and he doesn't do anything out of need. But that's an error in trying to apply human logic to sovereignty. You know, we can only go so far with that. <laughs> we, our mind just is not capable of going too far with that. We can go about as far as the Scripture does. And sometimes we let our imagination run here and there. But I'm telling you this, it's bigger than we are. It's bigger than we are. He's sovereign. There's no doubt. Could he have made a coin materialize in his hands? Of course. He spoke the universe into existence. He could have made a coin appear in his pocket. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and does as he pleases in heaven and earth and all the deep places. And the sea, it says in Psalm 135. He does heaven and earth and the sea and all deep places. He has all the gold and silver in the world. They're his. They're just another piece of metal to him, but they're all his. So you do the math if he needed a coin. But he didn't. Why? Because he has a lesson to teach. He's in his sovereign majesty. He's not out of any need, but according to his divine scheme and purpose, he uses means to teach people that which they need to know. I stand before you as an example of that very thing. He can use a fish to pay a dung, and he can use a sinner to preach the gospel. A wondrous thing, that. He can fix it. Fix it. 
settle it forever. That his elect are brought to faith one way. By him saving some wretch. The worst of the lot, the offscouring of the universe, the hated, and standing up, standing him up on his hind legs, and giving, putting a gold coin in his mouth, and let him pay tribute to Christ. How are the elect saved? One way: through the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many who say, well, you can read the Bible and be saved. And I'm not saying that's not so. Because I, I, don't, I don't want to pigeonhole God a cane. He's God and I'm not. But we have neither right nor warrant to say that from the pulpit or even believe it in our hearts because the Bible doesn't say it that way. The Bible says through the foolishness of preaching, he's pleased to save them that believe. How shall they hear without a preacher? He said in his word that if he was hungry, he wouldn't ask us, so he don't do it out of need. Please the Lord to use means. It pleased the Lord by the foolishness of preaching to save them believe. It is all for the glory of his grace. You think about whom God calls to preach. He don't call the best of mankind. I know, and it seems to me that a lot of preachers today are becoming back to the old idea of being a professional But I've been called a professional in my life. I had many sergeants in the service call me a professional screw-up. So that's, you know, I've been called professional. But preaching is not a profession. It's not a profession. It's not a job. It's a calling which nobody ever asked for. <laughs> nobody ever asked for it. It's not a bad job. It's a good one. I don't have any complaints. I live in among a people who are not my people. They are Native Americans. They tell me I'm the only white man that doesn't claim Cherokee blood or a Cherokee Indian princess as a grandmother. So, you know. They're Native Americans. I'm a Uneg, a white man. And they love me. And take care of me. Just because I stand up three times a week and tell them about Jesus Christ, they give me a house to live in and pay them all my expenses. Miss me when I'm gone, welcome me when I come back home. And you know who I am? Vile and unclean and undone. The worst of the worst a professional bad man why because this is by grace you see it's unmerited favor the wise are confounded the mighty are chagrined and sometimes are made nothings when they are when they try to real, rationalize that God would take a ruined, vile sinner, unlearned and unlettered, unfit, and fill his mouth with not only the gold coin of faith, but the unsearchable gold coin of the riches of Jesus Christ as a tribute to his grace and a means of the salvation of his hearers. 
Christ in his sovereign majesty and grace uses the meagerest of things to accomplish the greatest of things. That tribute's going to be paid. What does he use? A scaly, bottom-feeding creature. Pulls him out of, out of his own natural habitat. <laughs> and puts him in another world with a gold coin in his mouth to pay tribute. Be filled with gratitude. And I mean this. That of all the fish in the sea, he set his hook in your mouth. Brought you in. Brought you to shore of Emmanuel's land. Put the gospel in your mouth. Filled it by his grace. And that gospel is the singular coin that pays tribute to the glory of the king. Finally, our Lord teaches that the payment of the tribute is his doing, not his children. He'll get glory for himself. We owe no tribute to the temple, the old covenant, the law. Why? Christ has paid the tribute for us. He fulfilled the law in every jot and tittle, paid the last farthing, met every requirement for righteousness before holy God, satisfied God's law and justice with his death. He paid the price, and he charged it to our account. When he died, we died with him. When he arose, we arose with him. When he ascended on high, we ascended with him and sit in heavenly places in Christ. Imputed his righteousness to us. Became, was made to be our righteous. He paid the tribute for me and thee. That's what he said. He didn't owe the tribute. He paid the tribute for us. For me, he said, for my glory. For thee, thy salvation. For me, for my glory, for thee, because you had nothing to pay. He's the king, the king of glory. And this miracle teaches us that very thing. Jesus paid it all, all the debt I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I think John's going to come lead us in a song. Hymn number 36, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Is that right? Hymn number 36.